invite you to open up to the book of Ephesians. You'll see the page number there on the screen. Uh, This morning, the title of our message, of my message, is A Changed People. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 will be our text, and the title is A Changed People. But before uh, before we read the passage, would you pray with me? Father, as we... Open up your word now. You've heard our prayer and our petition, Lord. You've heard our praise, the very words that we have sung. And now, Lord, we want our hearts to praise you as we rejoice in your word. So would you speak to us now? Lord, would you anoint my lips, anoint our ears to hear what you would say to us by your Holy Spirit through your word, your living word. We ask God that you would... uh, Make our hearts jubilant over your word. Open our eyes to see and our minds to comprehend the truth of your word. And I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you knew me when I was a junior and senior in high school, which, as I look around the room, no one does. Uh, so if you knew me then, though, and knew me as a, even a, a freshman in college, uh, you would be surprised that I'm a pastor today. As many of my friends who I know from high school or in college are surprised that I'm a pastor today. The reason is because I'm a changed man. I'm different. I'm different than I used to be, and this is by the grace of God. Only by the grace of God that He has changed me and transformed me. My past is not important. My future, though, is important. And here's what God has done in my life. He has gave me uh, new life. He He has created me new in Christ. And so as a new creation in Christ, I'm a changed person. As new creations in Christ, we are changed people, all of us. It doesn't mean we're perfect. We've not yet arrived. None of us have. Contrary to what my wife might tell you, I've not arrived, all right? Uh, No, reality is that we're all in process of being changed. We're being transformed. We're being transformed by God's grace. And so as we look at this text this morning, what we see is we see a church who are a people, a group of believers, a congregation who are changed, and yet at the same time, they are being changed, And so the Apostle Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus and he's encouraging them and sharing with them those things which they are to remember, but also looking forward the work that God has done in their lives. He's pointing all of this out to them. And so if you find your place in verse 11 of chapter 2, say amen. Okay, now follow along as I read. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, what I want us to see this morning is this passage, in this passage, that Paul is telling us that the peace of Christ unifies all believers and grows us together into a holy temple for God's dwelling. Now, that's where we're heading. But how do we get there? First, I want us to to note this. Here's how we get there. Paul begins by saying in verses 11 and 12 two times, Remember this. Remember who you were. Right? Verse 11. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. Verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Then he goes on to list these five things in verse 12. And so first I want us to see this. Our previous condition without Christ helps us understand our present position in Christ. This is what Paul is pointing out when he's telling the Gentile believers to remember remember who you were and Paul speaks of this great contrast in verses 11 through 13 this great contrast between Jew and Gentile who you were before Christ and who you are now in Christ so there are three notable truths that I think every believer everyone in here needs to remember the first one is this that works in the flesh cannot save us. We see this in verse 11. Works in the flesh can't save anybody. In verse 11, he says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made, what? In the flesh by hands. You see, Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision... He's pointing out this distinction between Jew and Gentile. And the point is that circumcision was a physical mark. It's no different today, which distinguished Jews as God's people from Gentiles, who were all other people. It didn't necessarily, it meant Greeks, it meant anyone who had a different ethnicity than Jew. And so this physical mark was a sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham for the Israelites. You might recall the battle, the the battle scene between Israel and the Philistines where King Saul has led the Israelite army to engage the Philistines. And this Philistine champion Goliath is standing there and he's mocking the armies of Israel. And this shepherd boy named David shows up and he hears this going on. And what does David say? He asked this question audibly and most of, many of the men gathered around him heard, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who taunts the armies of the living God? This was a term of derision. 
it was a term that was thrown out toward anyone who wasn't a Jew to say you are not part of the people of God. To be called the uncircumcised then was a put down, so to speak, in in the vernacular of today. It was used to speak of those who were outside of God's covenant. And so while Paul is making this contrast between Jew and Gentile, I think that what he does is he takes it a step further. He takes it a step further than the Jews would have expected or appreciated. The words in the flesh point us back to verse 3. Remember in chapter 2, verse 3, what Paul said. He was making this distinction again between Jew and Gentile, but in verse 3, he lumped Jew and Gentile together by saying, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. In other words, all of us were under this same condition, really. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We were all under the wrath of God. We all once walked in our fleshly corruptness. In fact, this is a truth that we need to remember, that in our flesh we are corrupt. Scripture calls this sin, Romans 3.23, all have sinned, right, and fall short of God's glory. Every one of us have this corruption deep down. It is intrinsic to our very nature. It It is the radical transformation that happened in our nature when Adam and Eve sinned and fell to sin in the garden. And so the reality for both Jew and Gentile culminates in this truth. That by this fleshly external act of circumcision, Jew or Gentile, neither one are welcomed into God's kingdom. In fact, Jew or Gentile is no more welcomed into God's kingdom than a sour or rotten fruit from the vine is welcomed by the vine dresser. You see, it's not about the physical act. Never has been. That's why Paul says in Romans 2.28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. You see, Paul's point here is remember this. Remember that external acts of righteousness can't save us. Only an internal change of man's condition can save us. The second notable truth we see that we must remember is that we must continually cast ourselves upon Christ in complete dependence upon Him. He goes on to note five ways the Gentiles were cut off from God, pointing us, I think, pointing us to true humility. We see this in verse 12. Look at what he says about our condition in verse 12. Remember that you were at that time, right? Number one, separated from Christ. Number two, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Number three, strangers. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Number four, having no hope. And number five, without God in the world. To be separated from Christ means literally to be without Christ. In other words, they were lost in sin and they had no hope of salvation. For the believer today, we understand this present blessing of salvation in Christ. There are many, many varied blessings that the believer enjoys, not just in the future, but but in the here and now. The guidance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
the illumination of our minds according to the Word of God. He grants us wisdom by His Spirit as we can have a a one-on-one interaction with our Heavenly Father. We have the promise that Christ Jesus is our, our shepherd. We see this throughout the Gospels. We're freed from bondage to sin to walk in newness of life in Romans. We have all of these promises throughout the Word of God that teach us the blessings of what it means to know Christ and to be in relationship with Christ. And the point that we need to remember is as we see this picture of these five things that characterize our lives before we came to Christ, the thing that we need to remember is that this, this points us to, to continually cast our lives upon Christ in dependence on Him. Because it's truly the only way the believer can walk through this life. He says we were spiritually alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. As aliens, the Gentiles were foreigners. They weren't citizens of God's kingdom. God had promised blessing and favor for his chosen people Israel. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. The the Gentiles, they weren't recipients of God's covenant promise through Abraham. They had no hope, right? They were hopeless. Kind of how Saints and LSU fans felt halfway through the 2015 football season, right? We were hopeless. We didn't have any hope. They couldn't do anything to change their fate. It's the same thing for us. We couldn't do anything. We could do nothing to change our fate. Because we were, as he says there in verse 12, without God in the world. In other words, we were without confidence. The true hope that Paul speaks about is based on the knowledge of who God is and His covenant promises to His people. And then the trust that we have this relationship with Christ, that God is going to, our relationship with God, that He's going to make good on the promises that He's made. You see, all these things, these five areas, they, they give rise to a stinging reality. That without Christ, our condition before God is utterly hopeless. Outside of Christ, we're utterly unable to approach God or to live life in a worthy manner of God's acceptance. But here's the good news of the gospel. It's only through Christ that we can come to God. And Paul is telling us this in verse 12 so that we remember we must continually cast ourselves upon Christ in complete dependence upon Him. The third notable truth we must remember that he draws our attention to in verse 13 is that God displays the riches of His grace in Christ. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, we were far off. We were far away from God. But we've been brought near. This is only by the blood of Christ. We've been made alive in Christ through His death and through His resurrection. This is what verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2 were about. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did He do? He made us alive together with Christ. Then he raised us up and he seated us with him in the heavenly places. It's by grace that we've been saved through faith. It's not of our own doing. It's the gift of God. He created us. He made us this wonderful masterpiece, this wonderful workmanship. We are the workmanship of Christ created 
by Christ in order to do good works for the glory of God. And so what we see is God is displaying the riches of his grace in Christ through the blood that was spilt in the resurrection of Christ, our Savior. It's as if a deadly enemy were in pursuit of us. And we were standing on the edge of this great chasm overlooking as far as we could see. And there was no hope of escape. The enemy is near. He is pursuing us with great tenacity and is about to take our lives. But there's no way across. We stand at the sheer drop-off of a 4,000-foot cliff overlooking the expanse of just nothing. And yet out of nowhere, it's as if miraculously we were lifted up and brought to the other side. And now what Paul is saying is we stand on the other side of this great chasm and we realize, we remember, were it not for the miraculous saving work of Christ lifting us out of our death sentence, we would have perished in unbelief. These are the riches of God's grace in Christ lavished upon us, as Dr. David said. Christ took the reproach and guilt of our sin upon himself. And he gave us life by laying his down. God the Son stepped out of heaven and laid down his life that we might have life and have it eternally. Let me ask you, believer, are you living your life in complete dependence on God? Are you trusting in Christ at every turn? Are you seeking to grow, seeking to grow in the conformity to his will? Are you seeking to pursue Christ with all that is in you? Are, are you walking in submission to the Holy Spirit? Remember, remember this morning, you can't earn your own salvation by being good enough or doing enough good deeds. Only the miraculous work of Christ can span the gulf that separates you from God. You must trust in Him for resurrection to new life. But not only do we remember our previous condition in light of our present position. Secondly, this morning, I want you to see that Christ, our peace, this is huge. Christ, our peace, has unified believers as one new humanity. He's unified believers as one new humanity. We see this in verses 14 through 18. First, we need to note what verse 14 begins with. That first part of verse 14 says, For He Himself is our peace. What does it mean to say that Christ is our peace? Well, here's what it means. It means that He's given us peace with God, and He's also given us peace with one another. It says in verse 17, and he came and preached, it's Jesus, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. See, Christ's life mission was to preach the truth about knowing God and living in relationship with God through him, through Christ. He came to reconcile the world to God by the giving of his life. And so to have peace with God means then that we can now Come to God, right? Reference verse 12. Verse 12 puts it like this, saying, remember that at one time you were, right? You were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant, having no hope, without God in the world. Those 
those who were far off were the Gentiles, but those who were near, they were also the Jews. You see that both Jew and Gentile must come to God through Christ. This is the point that Jesus is making. Though we were enemies of Christ, He has made us sons. This is the foundational truth that every person in this world must hear. For Jew and Gentile, Christ is the one true way to God. For every man, woman, boy, and girl, there is one way to get to God, and this is what Scripture teaches us. It is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But listen, not only does the reconciliation of Christ bring us to peace with God, it brings us to peace with one another. So we're brought into peace with God, but then we're also given peace with one another. Get this, He has restored the human race in unity for all believers. We see this in verse 14. Verse 14, the second part of verse 14, it says, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And verse 15, the second part of verse 15 says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, right? So making peace. Here's what Christ has done. He has taken the two, Jew and Gentile, right? Only two categories, only two categories according to what Paul is saying. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. That sums up all of humanity. And now what he's done is he's made a third race. But he's really returned us to the first race, to the new humanity. That which was corrupted through the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, namely human nature, has been restored through the cross of Christ. You see, the dispersion of nations at Babel through the confusion of languages has been reversed now in the new humanity created by Christ. Christ in his humanity was like Adam and Eve before the fall. He was without sin. And during his earthly ministry, though he was tempted to succumb to a will different than the Father's, he refused and he remained obedient even to the point of death on the cross. This is how verse 15b says, He might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So you see, all who have been born again in Christ have been created with a new nature. This is that new nature I even spoke about earlier as we have been changed. We are a changed people. And the grace of God, get this, church, the grace of God is so rich toward us that even though we've been given this new nature and we still struggle and battle with sin and we still fall prey to the temptations of the flesh, even in the midst of that, God's grace is so rich toward us that we are continually being sanctified and perfected in our faith. So that even in the midst of our sin, and we realize that and we confess it before the Lord, even in the midst of that, He is doing this wonderful, marvelous work in our lives of transforming us, bringing us to the point of sorrow and repentance over our sin, all the while transforming us, even using the bad in our lives ultimately to work for the good of His glory and purpose. This new humanity, I think it speaks directly to our culture today. In a day when racial tensions are illuminated by the media spotlight, God's word declares that Jesus Christ 
has eradicated ethnic division. He's eradicated racism, our prejudice. Christ has broken down the division of hostility. Look at verse 14, the last part. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This dividing wall was the wall that separated the Gentile court from the inner court of the temple. This wall actually barred Gentiles from entering the temple to worship God. In fact, between the Gentile and Jewish court was a sign that read, No Gentile may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. There was a great division between these two ethnic groups, Jew and Gentile. You see, the barrier to the salvation of all nations has been obliterated through Christ, through His cross. Christ is the Savior of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Christ has brought peace, get this, peace between men, between one another, so that we no longer see according to the ethnic origin or divisions, we are a new humanity. And we as the people of God, as new creations in Christ, are to extend this gospel of peace. As he says, our shoes, I mean, our feet should be shod with what? The gospel of peace. And in Ephesians chapter 6, we are to take this gospel of peace to all nations. We are to extend this gospel of peace, this gospel of salvation to all people. Because the gospel of peace crosses every racial, every ethnic barrier by the power of the cross. You see, Christ, our peace, has bought peace between men. And church, of all people, we the church ought to be a people who are standing up for ethnic equality. We ought to be the people who are taking a stand and working hard to cross any racial barriers and lines that are put up within our community. We ought to be brothers and sisters in the faith who join together to worship Christ. Because here's the thing. In Christ, He has created a new man, right? Both of them have become one. The two now made into one. So all who are made alive in Christ have become part of His new humanity. We've been adopted into the family of God. And in the family, there is no division. We are one. Colossians 3.10 says it this way, And have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal, listen, in which there is no distinction between Greek and and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So we see that Jesus Christ is our peace. We see that He's restored the human race in unity for all believers. And thirdly, we see that He's reconciled us to God. Verses 14 and 16, as we read a moment ago at verse 14, he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do you get those references? In his flesh, 
He has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. Through his body, he has reconciled us, the two men, into one. You see, here's the thing. Christ in his flesh did what no flesh could do, nor what any flesh wanted to do. He did the work unto salvation that we could never do. And by reconciling us to God, he has given us peace with God. So not only has Christ obliterated the wall of hostility, in his humanity, he actually killed the hostility. And when we're born again, he gives us a new nature. And listen, church, this new nature, it shows itself through love for mankind. This means that we, as believers, are to demonstrate the gospel of peace. We are to demonstrate the love of God for all peoples. We do this by proclaiming the truth of the gospel, the hope of the gospel. You see, the challenge is straightforward, church. If there are any prejudices in our hearts, these are not from God. God is sovereign over all nations, and Christ died for all peoples, every tribe, every nation, every tongue. This is the point of John 3.16, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus Christ died that he would make peace between man and God, bringing us, restoring this relationship that God initially created us in the garden, in our humanity to enjoy with him. But then also, the work of Christ grants us peace with one another. You see, by reconciling us to God, Jesus has given us access to the Father. Look at verse 18. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. The same Holy Spirit given to you is given to me. The same Holy Spirit given to us, given as a seal of our inheritance, has been given to our brothers and sisters in Uganda and in Mexico and in Brazil and among all nations. We have this commonality. We are united by the work of Christ through the Spirit of God and we are all able to approach the throne of God because of the work that Christ has done on our behalf to save us from our sin. It is the blood of Christ that has given us righteousness. And it is his resurrection that has given us life. Thirdly, this morning, and finally, I want you to see, not only are we to see that our previous condition without Christ helps us understand our present position in Christ, and not only do we see that Christ, our peace, has unified believers as one new humanity, now we see the implications of that new humanity. That is, the church is a living display of our new humanity. Notice how verse 19 begins. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, right? So then, based upon all that's been said here up to this point in chapter 2, all that's been said about our condition, right? Verses 1 through 3. All that's been said about God's gracious saving work, chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. All that's been said about our work as created masterpieces for God's glory. Verse 10. All that's been said about our new humanity. Verses 11 through 18. 
He says, so then, we're no longer strangers and aliens. See, here's the takeaway. The new humanity created in Christ gathers as the church and enjoys the privileges of being citizens of God's kingdom. We enjoy the privileges of being citizens of God's kingdom. We enjoy the privileges of being members of God's family. And we enjoy the privileges of being God's dwelling place. This is the church. Citizenship in Rome was a big deal in Paul's day. To be a citizen of Rome, a person enjoyed privileges and enjoyed status. Paul's saying that we have been brought into God's kingdom. And now, as new creations, we've been given citizenship. We've been made citizens of God's kingdom. In fact, we're in this kingdom of God where Christ, our King, has conquered death. And we've been supernaturalized, as it were, as citizens into God's kingdom. Where we are now seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. In other words, we have a privileged status, position. And we enjoy special privileges afforded to God's people. Not just in the future, but here and now. You see the power of Christ at work in us and through us. To free us from bondage to sin. To strengthen us daily. To live for Him. To live holy lives pursuing Christ. To proclaim the gospel to unbelievers. As the apostle said in Acts 4.29, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Right? This is the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the life of the believer. God has... God has empowered us. He has made us citizens of His kingdom, but not only citizens of His kingdom, He uses another metaphor to give us a a more full description. We're not only citizens, we're members of God's family. Verse 19, right? Of the household of God. Not only do we share as citizens of God's kingdom, we share as brothers and sisters in God's family. See, the metaphor of family communicates really an intimacy that's shared by God's people. If we're traveling abroad and we see a fellow American as we're in another country, in a positive sense, there's a, there's a commonality, right? I mean, we're, we're citizens of the same country. But also to say that we're of the same family takes it just another step deeper, doesn't it? It takes it another step deeper to understanding a fellowship, a sense of intimacy, You see, those in the family of God are united in Christ. In 2005, we took, Tara and I took a two-week mission trip to Southeast Asia. And one of the guys that was on the trip, he was was meeting another group from our same church that was doing another two-week mission trip in Southeast Asia. But instead of being where we were uh, in rural areas... They were going to be working inner city on, uh, on a campus and doing uh, also work with inner city churches, kind of under, uh, under the radar. And while we were on our way back, we were deboarding the plane in Korea. And as we were deboarding the plane, we were walking down the skywalk, and lo and behold, we didn't know this would happen, but we saw the other group from our church on the other side of the glass in the skywalk. And so they rushed to the glass, and we kind of paused right there and 
got close to the glass, and though they couldn't hear us and, and we couldn't hear them, it was amazing to see them. I, I mean, there was an excitement, there was an intimacy of being part of the same church family on mission, on mission together and kind of swapping places as we were crossing in the airport and, and then seeing one another in the midst of, of an international airport, being from the same church family. It was incredible. And we wanted to tell them all that God had done for the success of the mission while we were there. And we wanted to tell them of how we were, we were praying for them for their success and proclaiming the gospel as they were there. We, we wanted to share in the work together. We went on and they went on and when we got back we laughed about it and talked about how we couldn't hear one another. But, but the point is this, as the family of God, we share in one another's triumphs and struggles. We're called to walk together in Christ so that we might advance the mission of Christ in the world. We're citizens of a heavenly kingdom and we are members of the family of God. Look around, church. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're called to walk together and advance the mission of Christ in the world. This is why we pool our resources, our our finances. This is why we we share our gifts with one another. This is why we make phone calls and we gather at midweek for home group and we we love on one another, we pray for one another, we listen to one another's struggles and, 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 and problems. We do this because we are part of the family of God. And we have this common bond in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God. Not only are we the family of God, thirdly and finally, we're God's dwelling place. This last metaphor gives us really a grand picture of the church and how we as individuals make up the church. We make up this dwelling place of God. You know, we gather every Sunday in this tent to worship the Lord. And we, we sometimes refer to this place as a house of worship. And that's right, it is. It's a place that we gather to worship the Lord. But Paul gives us some clarity on what the church looks like. Verse 22, he says, In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God. Verse 21, he says, All this being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This dwelling place has some significant features. Verse 20 tells us it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That is the foundation of the word of God. Listen, the church is built upon the word of God, handed down through the apostles and through the prophets as they spoke the word of God, revealing the mystery of God's eternal plan of redemption. And this mystery takes shape and takes root in the church. And so it is the word of God that is the foundation upon which the church is built. And so, church, we stand on God's word. That's why we value expositional preaching and expositional teaching. That's why we set aside these times that we gather on, on Sunday nights throughout, throughout the year, two semesters, where we, we try to gather for specific times of growing in discipleship and improving our, our walk with the Lord, improving our, our marriages. What, whatever we're working on, we're, we're growing in our understanding and knowledge of God's Word. You see, the church is founded on the Word of God. But listen, also in verse 20, we see that Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. We tend to think that in our modern day that the foundation is the most important part of the building, but in ancient architecture, it was the cornerstone. The cornerstone gave stability to the entire foundation. The character of the foundation took shape based upon the cornerstone. Everything was dependent on the cornerstone. 
And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church. He shapes our lives. He shapes our character. He shapes our ministry. He directs our impact into the city as we are being faithful to follow him. Thirdly, we see that we're building blocks in his hand. So, church is founded on the word of God. Christ Jesus himself is a cornerstone. And we are the building blocks. If you come to my house, chances are you're going to find a Lego in some corner of the house. You might even step on one. You know, my kids love Legos, and they've got all these different shapes and sizes. If you've not been on the Lego scene in a while, not only are there squares, rectangles, but now there are octagons, there are circles, there are like torch flares. There's all these kind of different shapes, right? But the kids love to take all of these blocks, and in their mind they create something, and they build it, and they build it into this wonderful building or wonderful thing. This is the picture that Paul leaves us with as the building blocks in the Savior's hands. He takes, he takes all of us, different shapes and sizes, and he uses our unique spiritual giftedness to be part of a much larger work. Paul says together we're being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Christ Jesus himself shaping our lives, chipping away the areas that need refinement, working and sanctifying us. 1 Peter 2.4 says this, And coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, listen, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are the building blocks in his hand, God's dwelling place. Believer, God desires to use your life. He desires to use your gifts, your relationships, to build the church. The question is, how are you being shaped by Christ? Are you being shaped by Christ? Are you submitting to Christ's work in your life? Together, we're being built into a dwelling place for God. Listen, this speaks to the importance of our participation in the body of Christ. Every member of the body, a minister on behalf of Christ. Every member of the church, important, equally important in the work of God for advancing the gospel among the nations. How does God want to use you? What is the way he wants to work in your life? Are there areas where he's calling you to surrender? Are there areas that he's calling you to leave behind because he's now your Lord, not those other areas? Are there things he's calling you to follow through with that you've not done? Listen, are you trusting in Christ? Are you depending on him? Not thinking you can do it on your own strength? Are you continually casting your your trust and your dependence upon Christ? I want to challenge us this morning. If you're not, you need to be. Let me pray for us. Father, your word is amazing and it's wonderful. And God, you are worthy of all praise. 
And Lord, as we consider your word today, think upon it and praise you because of it. We ask that you would strengthen us. Maybe to let go of prejudices that we have in our life because we are one new humanity. Strengthen us, Father, to be submitted to your leadership and your direction in our lives. Strengthen us, Father, to remember from where we've come and to trust in you and to be grown by your grace and your mercy toward us. And Father, we pray that you would receive all praise and honor and glory as we seek to walk following you and serving you with all of our strength and might. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.